I'm Jonathan Goldstein, host of Wiretap. Each week you're invited to listen in on my telephone conversations, whether funny, sad, wistful, or even slightly strange. You never know just what you might hear on Wiretap. Uh, I mean, I knew you had a show. I just, I just didn't think that people actually listened to it. Howard, That's you... the breath of your genius, Jonathan. It's not just that you're funny, but you can be cripplingly, poignantly depressing. The Wiretap Archives, available on CBC Listen, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I remember we used to have these uh, biggest smiley celebrations for Kushali at the PNE, and this is in, in Vancouver, B.C. It's the early 90s, and Akil is just a little kid. My name is Akil Varani. Running around, playing street hockey with friends. Uh, watching wrestling. And attending events in the Ismaili Muslim community. Akil's mom is from France. His dad's Muslim Indian from Tanzania. It's at one of these events that Akil learns a small but vital lesson. Okay, so he's at this big party, lots of people, lots of music, other kids. And there are these long tables with volunteers serving food and drink. And Akil thinks, yeah, now, now is a good time for some mango juice. And this auntie is there in her, you know, beautiful pink sari, and she poured the the mango juice in my cup. And I was so excited. It was the sweetest mango juice, you know, you couldn't get it anywhere else. And I, I said, thank you. And I saw her light up. I saw her, you know, her whole demeanor sort of changed. You know, all I did was say thank you, but it, it meant so much. I, I think it was a simple realization to know that a simple gesture could make such a, a difference in someone's day. As a kid, that moment... Not being nudged by a parent to be polite, but to give a genuine thank you and see what happens. That planted a seed for Akil about the power of saying thanks and taking a moment to connect. It's a lesson that, years later, was painfully reinforced when Akil missed an opportunity to say something. And then it was too late. And I felt sick. I think of it as a lesson about saying thank you often and making time for it. I'm AC Rowe, and this is The Doc Project. Akil is an artist now. He just turned 30. And for his birthday, he wanted to do something special. Uh, I've, I've done birthday projects before. For example, I'd done 24 artworks in 24 hours for my 24th birthday. But for, for this project, I wanted to just take a moment to say thank you. So I decided I was going to write 30 letters to people who have inspired me throughout my life. Some would be sent to people he knew. Who did a certain thing that really stuck out to me, that, that I really look up to. And some letters would be sent to people he's never met and probably never will. People who don't even know that I exist. As an artist, Akil didn't want to just send emails. Instead, he composed these beautifully designed letters, printed in color. I chose a kind of typewriter font, uh, which, which has this 
very personal feel, right? It's sort of imperfect, the font, you know, as a kind of typewriter texture, you know. So it feels more like a personal object that someone created specifically for you. This is Akil's story, the story of a life so far in thank yous. His art project is called 30 Letters. Akil will take it from here. Dear Kahindi Wiley, Dear Sandra Chevrier, Dear Patsy Van Roos, Dear Debbie Mull, Dear Debbie Mull, I wanted to tell you how much I appreciate the time we've shared. I was always so excited to visit the Mall residence. Debbie Mall was my friend's mom. I met my friend Lauren in grade eight and quickly got to meet her sisters and, and her mom, Debbie. She worked, I think, as a nurse and, and would do long hours, long shifts. I just got the sense that she was working really hard. When I sat down to write the letter to Debbie, I thought, do I write to Debbie, the mom, or do I write to Lauren, my friend? And I thought, I'm going to write to Debbie. Debbie is the, the leader of the household and the one who, who leads by example and sets the tone for kindness. Debbie, I think I learned the most about kindness from you. I saw in you my smart, hardworking mother who sometimes put up with too much crap from other people. Not only did I see in her, you know, a, a bit of my mom, you know, someone hardworking and, and raising a family. One of the clear things I remember is, you know, the way I felt when I went to Debbie's house. And I felt welcome. Everyone in the family was just nice to each other. Felt like a movie, right? Everybody's laughing and playing board games and there's food there and everyone's being generous and everyone's in a good mood. Your family seemed to have some sort of kindness gene that included the sisters, the cousins, and even the dogs somehow. Maybe kindness is... I was struck by that feeling and that atmosphere because it wasn't always like that at my home. The values that you modeled. And so going to, to my friends' houses was, was not only exciting because you know i was hanging out with my friends but it was also so nice to to be in a home where i was away from any of the stresses that i had at home and i felt so much more at ease knowing that the rules were somehow different there was a there was an atmosphere of kindness this atmosphere that i loved to be a part of when i was a kid sending lots of love from out east akil varani I grew up in a house with three older brothers. I remember a lot of roughhousing happening. I was closest in age to one of my brothers, and, and we would sort of wrestle all the time. And I didn't like to do that. My parents divorced when I was eight years old. 
two of my older brothers were quite a bit older. Not only were my parents divorced, but my two older brothers had moved out, you know, by the time I was a, a kid. I know that my mom was working hard to raise kids on her own. We just didn't have the same kind of family dynamic. I know that even the people and the families I looked up to uh, surely had their issues too. But the vibe when we would hang out was always so fun and supportive. And then I had this sort of added admiration for parents who could create that in some way. Dear Zainab Virgi, Dear Phil Hansen, Dear Elseed, I am writing these letters to people who have inspired me, but it's not necessarily true that all these people would love that letter and would love, you know, hearing these personal things from someone. Maybe some of them would rather keep a little bit of a, an emotional distance because they, they, they don't want to read something so personal or, or even I don't want them to feel like I'm burdening them with this sort of emotional story or baggage that I'm sending to them in a letter. Another thing I was worried about was, are some of these experiences and the way these people inspired me, you know, should that be left unsaid? Will I somehow ruin it or make it weird by making it explicit? Maybe as a kid, I said thank you and, and th that's enough for them. Dear Shanice Nicole. Dear Laurent Duvernay. Dear Master Paolo. Dear Master Paolo, I used to study Taekwondo at Surrey Martial Arts for several years as a young kid. When I was a kid, my mom put me in Taekwondo. And I was taught by a teacher we called Master Paolo. We address him as Master Paolo based on a designation he has as a master in Taekwondo. I remember being so impressed by how strong Master Paolo was. I remember a black kit you used to wear and the sound of the fabric hitting And I remember as the sound that he made when he punched. You know, it was so much force that the fabric that he was wearing would hit his arm and make a sound. I always remembered looking up to Master Paolo and wanting to impress him and wanting to keep my legs up, you know, my knees up as high as I could while running on the spot, wanting him to think I was strong and, and to think I was hardworking. I remember memorizing forms as if they were dance choreography. I recall one time when we were training and you started to step on our abs as we did. We would do push-ups and sit-ups and, and you count often as you're doing them, right? So everyone yells out at the same time, one, one, two, three. So we're doing sit-ups together. And then Master Paolo did this thing where he would walk by us and he'd say, I'm going to step over your abs here and see if you can hold. And I remember he was coming over to me, and I'm nervous, and he steps over, and I just felt so proud that I could show Master Paolo how strong I was as this scrawny kid, and, and he's this sort of very muscular man. You were my teacher for Taekwondo, but you were also my teacher for hard work and perseverance. My teacher of indomitable spirit. He taught us about hard work and integrity. He was pushing us to be better while we were training. You are my teacher of discipline, of respect, of only using your strength 
if you really needed to. Here was this guy who was so strong, a man who could beat up anyone, right? But who was teaching us to be kind and who was teaching us not to get into fights and to do everything to de-escalate the situation. When in my life, I had men and I had boys who were more violent and who were using their, their body and their strength to try and solve their problems that way. Sending you my best wishes with admiration and respect. I think of the project almost as like a gratitude timeline of, of thinking back, who are people who had an impact on me who I've forgotten to think or who I never got around to thinking or who I never had the chance to think? The initial idea of the, the 30 letters came from sitting in my apartment during the pandemic and wanting to connect with people but not knowing exactly the best way to go about that. And, and so letter writing made sense because it was a solitary activity, you know, that I could do on my own that I don't need others to do. So I think that's what made me think, could I send something physical? Could I send something that gets us just for a moment offline? I started by creating a list, just jotting down different people I thought I might want to write to. You know, I decided early on that I wanted to take this opportunity to write to people who I might not normally write to, people who I've maybe fallen out of touch with, or people who I'd, I felt I didn't get to say enough about what they gave me and, and how much I, I appreciated that. Uh, as well as people I, I don't know yet, taking it as an opportunity to say, you know, I'm, I'm going to write these letters and I'm going to write to, you know, artists or, or public figures that I admire and, and tell them why. Dear Jigmeet Singh, Dear Meredith McGee, Dear Kevin Lado, Dear Norm and Winnie Yu, I hope this letter finds you well. I work out east as a visual artist and graphic designer staying freelance and mobile so that I can move around with my partner's job. I often do creative projects to mark my birthday, and this year I'm writing 30 letters to people who have inspired me. I've always loved letter writing. Letter writing is actually a lot like making art because it's not just about the words or the, you know, the ink on the page, it's about the meaning and the gesture. I started messing around with different visuals that could go on the back of the letter. I would take a, an image from the internet of, of that person and repeat it in a pattern. So I, I would flip it and multiply it so that when you look at it, it looks like wrapping paper. But when you look closer, you actually see you know, hundreds of the same image repeated. And it's the image of the person I'm giving the letter to. Dear Anouk Yonker, Dear Hassan, Dear Roberto Luongo. Dear Roberto Luongo, I grew up in Surrey, BC, watching the Canucks play and imitating players during marathon street hockey sessions on our rollerblades. As a kid, I, I really looked up to Roberto Luongo. He, he's a, a former NHL goaltender. He played for the Florida Panthers as well as the Vancouver Canucks, the team I followed as a kid. And the fans, you know, during his tenure in Vancouver, they used to cheer, Lou. The Lou cheer. 
starting in full throat at Rogers Arena. When he would make a big save, it sounded to the average fan like a boo, but we were actually saying Lou for Luongo. It's a shutout for Roberto Luongo. First of the season, 61st of his career, 34th with the Vancouver Canucks. You know, he was a big star, especially growing up. He was the, the pinnacle of hard work, of achieving your dreams. He was classy in interviews. He was known among his teammates for having a sense of humor through some of the tough times in his career. And he had dark, curly hair like I did. So even though I'm Indian and French, my last name is Varani, and people often found that that was an Italian name, and they asked me if I was Italian. And I would say, unfortunately, I'm not Italian, knowing that Roberto Luongo is, and if only I could be more like him. And there's the Luongo narrative to this one as well. So the Canucks saluting the fans who will be back for playoffs and the Lou chants reverberating. More than a decade ago, I remember running around the house yelling when Scott Oak asked you a question of mine. This is from uh, a Quill in Surrey, BC. Uh, do you like the style of play better um, or the importance of hockey in Vancouver's market? And does the nightlife stand out for you? <laughs> I think I read it wrong. Vancouver's market, the nightlife perhaps. What stands out for you about Vancouver? That's the essential question. Well, I think it's a great hockey city. I mean, uh, you look at the, the crowd every night is this packed house and uh, the crowd is really loud and uh, you really, uh, takes the level of play of our players up a notch. Throughout my childhood, I was just so excited to, to watch him play on TV. And he would own up to his mistakes and he would admit when he didn't have a very good game. I, I don't really have any answers for you. I mean, um, we uh, thought we had a good game plan coming into the series and uh, I thought we started off the series really well and then... Um, what happened in the second? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, just breakdowns. You know, I was able to make some saves in the first, and then, uh, you know, they score uh, the first one. Uh, you know, not even, I don't know how much longer later, they, they score again. And it was 2-0, and uh, fortunately, uh, that goal at the end of the second period uh, really hurt us. The goalie, you're the last line of defense. And to be under so much pressure and still have to face tough questions from the media, I think that was a great example for me, and, and I... Even as a kid, I, I knew that that was a hard thing to do, to night after night be so kind with people and professional and, and even keel. Even when things aren't going well, even when you're sweaty and exhausted, and now there are people who write about you every day asking you annoying questions, you know, you still have the self-control to take the question and say, you know what, I could have done better tonight. To then still maintain that level, to me, is, is what I think I learned from him as a kid. Thanks for all that you have done and all that you continue to do for the Vancouver Canucks, the Florida Panthers, and the game of hockey. During the, the process of, of, you know, thinking of who to write to and writing the letters, you know, I've had to, to sort of go back and think about my relationship to kindness and, and, you know, who taught me about that. And 
I'm sort of looking into my past and going back and you know seeing some of the the happy parts and also some of the the harder parts and thinking about being bullied as a kid and witnessing violence i think maybe because i wasn't always happy during my childhood i searched for kindness and i searched for ways to connect with people and seeing how kindness helped me and finding it in different places was a way to survive and and to feel happy and then to to be able to notice where the kindness came from in my life and and who displayed it and taught me about it in in subtle ways and to be able to say thank you to those people i think that that's been one of the the best parts of the project dear colin kapernick dear ricardo lamour dear ron mclean dear ron mclean i grew up in surrey bc watching hockey night in canada practically every saturday my two immigrant parents indian and french respectively didn't fully understand my interest but as a kid i played street hockey daily on my rollerblades with the other kids in a mostly sikh and punjabi neighborhood we were always riding aboard the west coast express i grew up watching hockey night in canada and at the the first intermission of each game there was coach's corner it was hosted by ron mclean and the sort of star was don cherry and you know all you have to do is hit them and when you hit them you don't have to maim them but hit them to hurt i mean nobody's afraid don cherry was very opinionated about the way hockey should be played and and he had opinions about you know the way we play hockey as as canadians and the way they play hockey as europeans nobody hits anybody look like a tea party out there look swedes and finns playing at december nothing no hitting then you go down and you watch uh, pittsburgh and canadians wangle wangle that's hockey i remember as a kid noticing just that that he had this kind of us versus them mentality and not only that that he seemed like a bully someone who just spoke loudly and over people and and didn't care what you, what you thought because he was right never go again these guys on email is kooks on email no don't call us kooks cuz you're kook no we we should be glad for kooks people that know how to oh, vote well, they're, they're the heaven's sake yeah. from now oh. on he'll be known as the jerk the freak not a jerk he, he, he's the guy a, that they decided whoa, to whoa, say whoa he's not a jerk as a young person of color I noticed the undertone of his comments even as a kid. You could sort of tell that he was kind of talking to an in-group and, and that in-group was generally white Canadian. There there was a certain group that he felt were living their lives the right way and who who knew, knew how to play hockey the right way. And then there was a group that he would uh, get into trouble for getting mad at or insulting or being insensitive. And so in contrast to that you had Ron McLean a more fair gentle person who would sort of keep Don Cherry in check a little bit and you women are going to get mad at me out there I'm telling you when you come to the games keep your eyes on the puck and I'm telling you I've seen some awful smacks and it's always a woman yapping away there no, look at the game Lots of fans. What are you talking? Both genders ah, get involved in talking about the game. 
I I'm dude, just trying try to help look them. at the puck, but don't blame women, men, or anybody else for uh, getting in the odd what conversation when you pay uh, Wait a minute. to get a ticket to come to the forum. I always appreciated the humility and sense of fairness you championed on screen, sometimes in subtle ways. I also want to thank you for apologizing after Don's comments in 2019. I wanted to address what happened last night on Hockey Night in Canada. Don Cherry made remarks which were hurtful, discriminatory, uh, which were flat out wrong. So I owe you an apology too. That's the big thing that I want to emphasize. I sat there. Uh, did not catch it, did not respond. Um, last night was a really great lesson to Don and me. We were wrong, uh, and I sincerely apologize, and I wanted to thank you uh, for calling me and Don on that last night. In Ron, I saw you know, a model for what it means to be a kind man. AC here. Coming up, the story of a letter that never got sent, back when Akil was at university. From CBC Podcasts and The Fifth Estate, Brainwashed is a multi-part investigation into the CIA's experiments in mind control. From the Cold War and MKUltra to the so-called War on Terror. We learn about a psychiatrist who used his patients as human guinea pigs and what happens when the military and medicine collide. Listen to Brainwashed on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Cher Maman André, when I was in university in Montreal, I sat down to write a letter to my French grandma. Premièrement, j'espère que tout va bien chez vous. Voici la première lettre que j'envoie à vous sans une approbation de ma mère. My French grandma, my mom's mom, we called her Mama André. And you can see, you know, I'm an anglophone, so I don't have the exact right French accent for that. I remember her as this really short, French grandma, very loving but stern. One thing that was hard when I was a kid is, is I didn't speak French super well. And, you know, it was a big tension, you know, in the family on my mom's side because, you know, my mom grew up in France and spoke French as her first language. Uh, but growing up in Vancouver and having a dad that didn't speak French English was the, the common language for, for all of us. So it was a big tension when we would visit France and, the, you know, the Canadian grandkids are coming and they don't speak French super well. We could sense that they would sort of bicker about it, even though we couldn't necessarily understand exactly what they were saying. Every morning, t'as bien dormi, is, did you sleep well? And, and bonjour, comment ça va? That was sort of what we could say in French. And... I, I was so frustrated that I, I couldn't say meaningful things to my grandparents, who were right in front of me. Moi, je sais que mon français n'est pas le meilleur. J'ai peur un peu que la famille pense du mal de moi, parce que je suis pas fluent en français. Me, I'm a little bit scared that the family thinks less of me because I'm not fluent in French. L'exposure, 
J'espère que c'est assez efficace pour me préparer pour des conversations significantes avec vous et les autres membres de la And I was so proud to be able to write a letter fully in French to her, to be able to, to communicate more complex thoughts than how are you in a written letter that I would send her by surprise. I wanted to just tell her that I was thinking of her. You know, I hadn't forgotten about her and and I wanted to visit soon and that I was practicing my French in Montreal so that I could have a real conversation with her. It was almost as if there was like a backlog of stuff we needed to catch up on. So I sat down and I, and I wrote the letter. Je veux que la famille voit mes efforts et pas mes défis en français. I wanted the, the letter to, to start a new chapter where we could have a direct relationship that I wasn't just as I was as a kid having to speak through my mom, you know, through a translator. I wanted to know really who she was and what it was like to be around her and to, to have a, a real conversation with her. On a beaucoup de choses à raconter, beaucoup de sujets de conversation et beaucoup des années de récupérer. Essayons. We have many things to talk about, many years to catch up on. So let's try. About a week later, I received a call out of the blue from my mom, and she told me that Mama André had died. I was seated in my dorm room, and I looked over, and I saw the envelope with the letter still there. And I felt sick. It was almost as if I was mourning the relationship I could have had. I'd never be able to tell my grandma how I felt or how much effort I was putting into learning French, and, you know, and how much I, you know, wanted to have a more meaningful relationship with her. And so, yeah, I don't know if it, it's conscious or not, but but I definitely have always thought since then, well, I better take a, take a bit of time here to say how I feel or to write how I feel. Regret and shame and, and you know, fear of, of that situation is, is very motivating. So I definitely think that there is a little bit of that in the letters that I'm writing to people. Just, you know, having a bit of urgency that, it, you know, if, if I don't make a priority of it now, I'll never write these letters. It was a hard lesson that I should take time to say thank you and to say meaningful things to the people in my life. That's what I, I learned. And then I remember thinking, well, what if I create a project around this that creates an occasion where it doesn't feel as awkward for me to spill my guts and say, to say how I feel? I think letters are a lot like artworks because you, you're creating something. You know, when I'm creating a painting, I'm creating it so that people can see it. You know, when I'm writing a letter, I'm writing it for a particular person. Art is ultimately embedding meaning in an object, right? That's all you're doing, right? It's, 
It's not always about the paint on the canvas, it's about what the painting is of and what it means to you and what's the story and the feeling you're trying to convey. And I think of, of letters like that too. Artists often use the phrase meaning making. That's all art is. It's meaning making. It's creating meaning out of things we're doing. And that's all letter writing is. Dear Ken Dear Dear Alia Dear Eliana Charlebois Gomez. Dear Eliana Charlebois Gomez. I hope you're doing okay in these weird times. Eliana Charlebois Gomez is an old friend of mine. We met during my first year in my undergrad at McGill University in Montreal. I didn't know Eliana well, and towards the end of my first year of my undergraduate degree, I was living in residence, and I, and I fell sick, and I had mono, and I just had no energy. The final exams were going on. I was bedridden, so I, I wasn't in a good place mentally or physically. And the date was coming up for us to move out of residence. I thought to myself, how on earth am I going to clean up my dorm room, pack my stuff out, all while exams are going on, all while I have no energy to do anything, and just my world is falling apart. So as I'm feeling completely at rock bottom, I hear a knock at my door. And there's Eliana. And she says, I'm going to help you get through this. I was in rough shape both physically and mentally, and you helped me so much. She took charge of the cleaning and the, the, the packing, and I remember the whole time thinking, who is this person being so kind to me? She didn't have to do this. She didn't have to come. She didn't owe me anything. So thank you we once back. more. Un fuerte abrazo, a strong hug, Akil. I realized that I had felt less lonely while I was writing the letters. As I write these letters, I'm imagining talking to the person in my mind. So it's this kind of dream that I'm creating. So it's, it's both social and solitary. And so that, that's kind of cool to think that that's actually a great thing to do during a pandemic, to feel like we're actually with people. There was a bit more pressure that I put on myself, I think, when I was writing letters to who I might call sort of my heroes or, or the, the people uh, whose work I look up to who I hadn't met yet. If I were to receive a letter from someone I didn't know and they were all of a sudden spilling their guts about how, you know, they had seen my artwork and it had changed their relationship with their family, you know, on one hand I'd be touched or on the other hand I might think, oh, that's sort of awkward for you to sort of share that. I don't really know you. Like, why are you telling me this? Dear Shelby, dear Cyrus Marcus, dear Ware. Sandra Shepard, dear Kent Monkman. Kent Monkman is a Cree visual artist. Kent Monkman's work tends to deal with his indigenous identity. And a lot of his work critiques or corrects some of the Canadian history that we take for granted. He inserts himself into these paintings of Canadian history. He inserts himself or his, his alter ego, mischief, eagle testicle, meant to resemble mischief and egotistical. 
he mixes the tradition of Canadian landscape painting that we often associate with with the group of seven or with Tom Thompson, along with portraiture and and, and images of figures of the RCMP and indigenous people and priests. I place your paintings in the pantheon of work I strive to make someday. They're both smart and engaging, subversive and accessible. I appreciate the political strategy in your work and the way that you illustrate injustice and irony rather than preaching. My work sometimes addresses the Islamophobia experienced by my Muslim brothers and sisters, but I struggle to depict this violence so directly as seen in some of your works, like The Scream. I went to the McCord Museum to see the Kent Monkman retrospective titled Shame and Prejudice. And one of the last rooms that I walked into, it's a fairly, fairly uh, dark room, and then centered on the wall, I saw a painting that's titled The Scream. And The Scream is, a, is this image of dozens of, of people. There's, there's chaos and commotion in front of a house. It's outdoors, and there are RCMP officers wrestling with an indigenous woman there are priests and you see the face of this indigenous woman screaming as she reaches for her child who's being taken away by a catholic priest when i look at that painting i can't help but but feel in my gut what it might be like to have your child forcefully removed from your grasp and taken away, especially by men in uniform. I find Kent Monkman's work, it, it punches me in the gut, and then it asks, how does that feel? Do you ever feel worn down by the pressure to subvert and address injustice in your paintings, now that you've become known for that? Do you feel pigeonholed by your particular painting style, yearning to make different visual decisions? I often wonder how we build a world of culture where non-white artists aren't subtly pushed towards making work only about their non-white identity. I admit this may be insignificant in the broader scheme of things. I'm very glad that there is more of your work in the world. I think that for Kent Monkman in particular, it's a slightly different nuance of gratitude to be impressed by someone or to be thankful that, you know, their work is in the world and that, that I got to see it. All right, uh, rounding the corner here at the, the pharmacy in the Canada Post to mail the letters. And I got my mask on. Does it matter to me if I get a response from the people I'm writing to? They're my heroes, people I look up to. Of course, I would love to hear from them. But sometimes I worry that suggesting that they reply takes away from the genuineness of what I'm writing. But in some sense, the, the exercise in gratitude and in thinking about what I have looked up to in people and what I valued, I, I think is, is worth it on its own. Hi there, can you just tell me which direction the post office is? Yeah, 
it's in the very far back corner. Okay, all right. Thank you so much. No problem, have a great day. The main point of the project is really to say thank you to, to each of the people I write to, to convey my gratitude and, and for them to know the impact that they've had on me. Hello, I uh, I have 30 letters to send. 30 letters to send? Yes. Okay. And are they all stamped or were you buying stamps for them today? Um, they're not all stamped. Okay. Yeah, so sort of a mix. When they open the letter, I, I hope they feel moved by what I've written. Oh, so 2814 is your clue. Great, great. It's my hope that they keep the letter. I hope that they keep it so that when they're feeling down or isolated, they can come back to the letter. And that they know that, that their actions mattered, that people noticed what they've done. All right, so there's your receipt for that. Thank you so much. You're good to go. All right, thank you. Have a good one. You too. Thanks for all that you have done and all that you continue to do for the Vancouver Canucks, the Florida Panthers. So thank you for what you bring to our living rooms. Thank you, Kent, for your work. Un fuerte abrazo, a strong hug. Akil. Akil Varani. Akil. Akil Varani. Akil is a visual artist based in Ottawa. That doc was produced by Eliza Siegel. It was edited by Allison Cook. Thanks to CBC Sports, Hockey Night in Canada, and Rogers Media Inc. for the archival audio you heard in that doc. Akil says that over the past few weeks, responses to his letters have been rolling in. But like he said, the point of his project was never to get a you're welcome. It was just to say thanks. weeks ago, I asked you if you had any advice for your 30-year-old self. And I asked you to share the story behind that advice. This is some of what you had to say. Hello, my name is Helen Trentis. I'm 61 years old. I live in Windsor, Ontario. My name's Mikhail Levy. And I'm 14 years old, and I live in Alberta. My name is Judy Peterson. I live on Moskiti Island off the coast of Vancouver Island in BC, in the middle of the Salish Sea. Hi, I'm Cecilia Salazar. Hi, my name is Lynn Silver. I'm calling from Winnipeg. Hi, um, my name is Sam, or Samantha DeFreitas, and um, I'm currently 19. I am from Kitchener. I've been constantly thinking about my future, especially what my 30s will look like. And um, I moved out of a toxic household into a tiny studio apartment with my cat during a global pandemic. And 10 years ago, we started our battle with serious depression, and we just dissociated that 
that whole decade away. When I came in here in Canada from a horrible coup in Chile, it was very hard, very, very hard because I didn't have the language. I have four children and I have to be the strong one in the family to make the life of my children easier. I was a single mother and in law school at the age of 30. I needed to earn a good income and show people I didn't want or need a man to support me and my two children. What I really wanted to do was design or decorate houses. I should have put together a portfolio and applied to attend OCAD instead of concentrating on studying for the LSAT and getting into law school. My father's not really in my life, and whenever I ask him to do something, he quickly says yes, but does not follow through. And for this reason, I want to be the person people can depend on. For me, having my marriage fall apart by being married to a U.S. Marine Reserve officer with three kids and was five months pregnant with the fourth when he decided to leave his family. He was only a reserve officer. He didn't have to do it, but he decided to leave us and spend the second tour of duty fighting the Vietnam War. And I chose to end the relationship. I chose to be single rather than participate any further in that war. Fast forward four years after that, my, uh, I guess you could call him prospective husband at the time, and I took my four kids and dog on a two-month camping trip to Vancouver Island. Camping was the only vacation for me and my kids. I didn't have much money, and I could afford that. And I knew if Michael was serious about his proposal to me, we needed to share a camping trip, a make-it-or-break-it experience. And believe it or not, on that trip, we were um, given info about a little island off the coast of Vancouver Island. There was one solid 800-square-foot panaboat home on 10 acres with a pond and a stream. We bought it, and we had to face the horror of our parents at our decision. We got married January 11, 1975. We celebrated our 46th wedding anniversary this January with the COVID-inspired isolation. It was just us guys. We could not imagine any better life to have lived together anywhere. My advice to 30-year-olds is the old saw. Follow your dreams, with some thought of the implications, of course, but do it anyhow, because your whole world will change around it. Do it anyway. I will tell my three years old at the time, just keep strong and keep doing what was your best, even in your own country, even in here, and keep going. I recently turned 66. And I would love the opportunity to give my 30-year-old self advice. I would advise that self to not be afraid of being afraid, but to embrace it. We don't learn anything or grow unless we try things. And trying things often involves being a little afraid. I would finally advise myself at 30 to not be intimidated by Saturday night solitude, but to embrace being alone and getting to know myself. The 
advice that I would give my 30-year-old self is number one, when you embark upon a career choice, be sure you really want it. It's not about impressing others. Do that which you are naturally drawn to. The advice I would like to give to myself is to be dependable. If I could give 30-year-old me advice, it would be to just never again forget. Never forget all that we accomplished and never forget that we have dreams and it's worth chasing them. <laughs> never forget that I want to remember the rest of my life in vivid color and clear sound. So never forget and do your best to make memories and remember your dreams. To young people, 30-year-olds, I would like to quote Helen Keller to them, who was both deaf and blind, and said it best, there is no security for man or beast. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing at all. I suggest go for the adventure. Solid advice, friends. Thanks to everyone who called in and to Doc Project producer Tanera McLean for putting that together and Veronica Simmons for editing. My advice to 30-year-old me, I am going to keep it simple and honest. Buy a bed frame already. Why are you still sleeping on the floor? You are a grown woman. Get it together. And that's it for us this week. The Doc Project is produced by Allison Cook, Tanera McLean, Sherry OKK, Veronica Simmons, and me. Our digital producer is Althea Manassen. Our senior producer is Jennifer Warren. And our executive producer is Joan Melanson. I'm AC Rowe. And thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.